Welcome back, you cheeky otters. It's time for Mistake in Assumption. Bell v. Lever Brothers, Limited, 1932. Mistake in Assumption, this is the common law doctrine. Facts, employment agreement. Bell, five years and acts as Niger's chairman. Niger amalgamated. Then the parties entered a severance package agreement. Later that year, Lever discovered that while employed, Bell had dealt and made profits with the same material in the same materials as Niger did, and did not and did not disclose these profits. Lever then brought this action, alleging fraudulent misrepresentation and breach of employment contract. Rule: Mistake operates to negative and sometimes nullify consent. Parties must be mistaken in one contracting party's identity that negatives consent and makes the contract voidable. Or two, res extincta, so a mistake in subject matter's existence. Mistakes can be made by one or both in these scenarios. Another way is mistake in subject matter's existence. But back to, I mean, mistake in subject matter's existence. 2A, subject matter was destroyed, void. One, for the sale of good exact. Contract void if seller was in ignorance of specific chattel's destruction. Two. If seller, if seller knew that it was destroyed and tried to sell, purchaser can sue for non-delivery damages and seller cannot sue for non-acceptance. 2b. Mistake as to quality of subject matter. In these scenarios, the contract will be void. Mistake will not affect assent, however, unless it is a. A mutual mistake as to the existence of some quality. And b. Without the quality, subject matter is essentially different from the thing it was believed to be. 3. Mistake as to title. This is a, another type of mistake. Resua. Unknown to parties, the buyer is already the owner, so the transfer is impossible. So the rule in Cooper v. Fibs here would be if parties contract under a mutual mistake and misrepresentation as to their relative and respective rights, the result is that the agreement is void. B. Another Resua type. Both parties think that the vendor has title. There is a contract here, but the vendor has either committed a breach of stipulation as to title or cannot perform. Contract is unenforceable in these scenarios, but not void. The ratio for this case. This here is an agreement about subject matter. Terminate contract and payment release and payment for the release of, of the plaintiff was exactly what they had hoped for. If the parties honestly comply with the essentials of contract formation, for example, they agree in the same terms of on the same subject matter, then they are bound. There was no special relationship or fiduciary relationship here that warranted um, Bell being required to disclose, so therefore the contract was not voided by Bell's non-disclosure. Solvey Butcher, 1950. Common mistake, equitable doctrine. Facts. Plaintiff was a surveyor and letting agent employed by the defendant. He gave the defendant a valuation and told him that he could charge 250 and that there was no rent control. The defendant relied on this and let out flats, one of which to the plaintiff. There was a mutual mistake, however, because there was rent control. Maximum rent was actually 140, not 250. Plaintiff, however, now claims to be entitled to the rent at 140. The rule. There are two types of mistake. One is a mistake that rend renders the contract void, a nullity from the beginning. That's part of the doctrines in Bell. 
Two, there is a mistake, type of mistake that renders the contract voidable through the doctrine of equitable mistake. Here's the quote for that. Contract is also liable in equity to be set aside if parties were under a common misapprehension as to the facts or as to their relative and respective rights, provided that the misapprehension was fundamental and that the party seeking to set it aside was not himself at fault. The ratio here, the mistake was entirely the plaintiff's fault. The plaintiff let to himself and others as in his capacity as the letting agent. The defendant relied on the plaintiff in setting the rent. Now he is trying to take advantage of the mistake, which is not only the rent that they agreed, the parties agreed upon, but also a fair and economic rent. This is an injustice. The plaintiff must either choose rescission or pay the full amount that they agreed on. Maggie and Pennine Insurance Company, 1969. So here, the facts are there's a guy who's 50, the plaintiff, he gets insurance, but he'd never had a driving driver's license. Puts three parties on the insurance. Himself, his wife, and his 18-year-old son. So the son drives at a lower premium. Son almost exclusively drives the car, gets into an accident. Uh, through correspondence, there's an agreement of compromise between the father and the insurer, which had already completed, like the agreement was done. The insurance company, after discovering that, discovering the mistake, now wants the agreement set aside by common mistake doctrine to the rule. Common mistake, even on the most fundamental matter, doesn't make a contract void at law, but it makes it voidable in equity per the rule in Sol. Here, common mistake, there was a common mistake which was fundamental to the whole agreement. They've, they both thought, thought that Mr. McGee was entitled to claim under the insurance policy. Therefore, it does not make the agreement void, but it does make it voidable, i.e. liable to be set aside in equity. Maggie had no valid, valid claim. Not equitable that he should have the £385 agreed within the uh, agreement of compromise, seeing that the agreement was made under a fundamental mistake. Not fair to hold the insurance company to the agreement that they wouldn't have dreamt of making, but for the mistake. McRae v. Commonwealth Disposals Commission, 1951. Facts. The defendant contracted to sell the plaintiff an oil tanker wrecked on Jormand Reef for £285. The plaintiff organized a salvage shop, but could not find the tanker. There was no tanker. There was no Jormand Reef. The defendant tries to argue against this by saying they merely shot, sold them a chance. So the rule in Sol, per the rule in Sol, neither party can rely on his own mistake to say that the contract is void. So party cannot rely on mutual mistake where the belief, where the mistake is a belief which is both entertained without reasonable grounds and deliberately induced by him in the mind of the other party. Here, the mistake is not common. Only the, the only mistake the plaintiff made was believing the defendant. Therefore, the defendant is liable for breaching their contract that the tanker was there, as they cannot rely on mistake to enter the contract because the mistake was their fault slash recklessness. Wood v. Boynton, 1885. The defendants were partners in a jewelry business. Plaintiff was an, was owner and in possession of a small stone, but ignorant to the nature its, its true nature and value. Plaintiff sold the stone to the defendant for one dollar. 
At the time of sale, neither party knew that this was an uncut diamond, and its actual value was $1,000. After leaving the plaintiff tendered, after learning this later, the plaintiff tendered the defendants $1.10 interest and demanded the return. However, the defendants refused. The ratio. Two reasons for recovery of possession. One, if the vendee was guilty of fraud in procuring the sale. Or two, mistake by the vendor in delivering an article which was not the article sold. This would be a mistaken fact as the identity of the thing sold with the thing delivered upon. Not really rescission of sale, just no title ever passed to the vendee by such a delivery in this scenario. Here, there was no fraud. Both were ignorant as to the character and value of the stone. Open to each to investigate. Both thought that it was adequate consideration at the time. The fact that it turned out to be more valuable than the parties supposed alone, that the parties originally supposed, this alone is not grounds for rescission without fraud or a warranty. Is the subject, quality of the subject matter per, per bell, that one. Ron Engineering, 1981. Oh, we know the facts. But the reasoning here was similar to wood. So the subject matter was the same, but the value was different. Didn't go to the trouble of finding out. Ron had no one double check his paperwork, so it's the same mentality. Ron meant to submit the bid and wanted to be part of consideration for contract A. So no dice. And that's mistake and assumption. All right, our final segment will be on anticipatory, reputatory, breach. Kingston and Preston, 1773. Facts. Preston said he would give Kingston and the nephew his business after one and one and a quarter years for security that they are creditworthy and have enough cash in the bank. Preston says, you did not give me the banknote of creditworthiness. So he refused to give his business over. So the rule. The three types of covenants based on if a stipulation goes to the root of the contract or not. One, mutual and independent covenants. Here, either party may recover damages from the other for injury from covenant breach and where it is no, ex is no excuse for the defendant to allege breach of contract on the plaintiff's part. Two, covenants that are dependent or promises, covenants, conditions that are dependent. Performance here, performance of one depends on the prior performance of another. And until this prior condition is performed, the other party is not liable to action on his covenant. Neither party can recover without proving that they have performed or are willing to perform. Obligation of payment and delivery would be concurrent. Three, independent slash mutual covenants that are to be performed concurrently. If one party was ready and offered to perform his part, and the other neglected or refused to perform his part in these scenarios, he who was ready and offered has fulfilled his engagement and may maintain an action for default, though not certain that either party is obliged to do the first act. Ratio here, this is a dependent covenant. Giving the business was triggered by giving the letter from the bank. The defendant giving the business was therefore conditional on the plaintiff's personal security. It was the giving of such security that must necessarily be a conditioned precedent. Bettini and Guy, 1876. Small W warranties. Facts. The defendant was a Royal Italian Opera Director. The plaintiff was a professional singer who agreed with the defendant a list of 10 terms. 
most important here was, or the one we're talking about today here is uh, that the plaintiff must be in London six days prior for dress rehearsals. So the plaintiff was temporary ill, temporarily ill. So he only comes two days prior rather than the contracted six. The opera, the defendant claims the condition, claims that the condition, claims that this was a condition, so the contract should be repudiated. The rule. So here's the test. In absence of express declaration, must look at the whole contract to see whether the particular stipulation goes to the root of the matter. So failure to perform it would render the performance of the rest of the contract by the plaintiff a different thing in substance from what the defendant has stipulated for. I.e., one, if the provision goes to the contract's root, then condition precedent. If it's a condition precedent, if the condition precedent is an independent covenant, then the breach means it is a thing very different in substance to what the plaintiff stipulated for, and it can be repudiated, and the contract can be repudiated. Two, if the provision doesn't go to, to the root, meaning more, more of a secondary term, then it's a warranty, breach of which only allows damages. To determine whether it's one or two, you must look at the true construction as a whole and the surrounding circumstances to ascertain intention. Step one, look at the words. Is there an intention there? Step two, look at the whole contract. Provision in relation to the contract. And then you also ask, is fail would failure to perform render the rest of performance a different thing in substance to what it stipulated? Or is it would it merely partially affect it? If it is little importance on its face, then that's a prima facie presumption of warranty. However, this is displaced if it's expressed as intending a condition precedent in the words. If it's essential on its face, the presumption is displaced if intention sufficiently demonstrates that performance is not really vital, then, it, then it, in which case it's a warranty and only entitled to damages. <clears throat> Usad and Spears and Pond. So Poussard v. Spears and Pond, 1876. Conditions, small c. Facts. Plaintiff's wife agreed in writing to be the lead in an opera for three months on the condition that it ran for that long, starting on no November 14th. There were some delays and it was going to start on November 28th, but the wife didn't object to this. The wife got very sick missed opening night and a few more performances. When she recovered, the defendant would not allow her to perform. The rule, determining whether a warranty or a condition is an objective, involves an objective examination of a contract as a whole. One, look at the contracting party's intent. It's an objective analysis. Two, what, are the, what is critical or at the heart of the contract? If it is, then it's a condition. Three, look at the words. So it looked more like a condition or a warranty. Four, if it's not clear, look at the surrounding circumstances. And the ratio here is look, well, look at the industry. It was comedic opera. Opening night in 1876 was critical for the success or the life of operas. Theater reviews define, defined an opera's duration. Bad reviews meant that it could be closed by day three. So the three month contract itself was uncertain. They survived opening night with the replacement and got good reviews. So they're entitled to say, go away, Poussard. Her failure, a condition breach, goes to the root. 
So I can repudiate. Cahave NV the Bremer, 1976, anticipatory breach. When one party, before the day when he is obliged to perform his part, declares in advance that he will not perform it when the day comes, or by his conduct evinces an intention not to perform it, then the other may elect to treat his declaration or conduct as a breach going to the root of the matter, and to treat himself as discharged from further performance. By his prior declaration or conduct, the guilty party is said to repudiate the contract. So what are the consequences of an anticipatory breach? Where an innocent party is not willing to treat the contract at an end, they have two options. One, to accept repudiation, that is treating the contract as terminated and suing immediately. Or two, waiting until performance arrives and calling the repudiating party to perform and sue if he doesn't. And that, you know, in that case, the contract remains alive. Once a choice has been made, however, it is binding. Maple Flock Company Limited versus Universal Furniture, Furniture Products, Wembley Limited, 1934. That's contract. 100 tons of flock, so couch stuffing. Term, delivery to comply with statutory regulations. 17 out of 18 deliveries complied. However, one had bleach. It was not usable. After discovery, the defendant tried to repudiate for a defective installment. Repudiate the whole contract. Ratio. In relation to what was contracting, what the parties were contracting for, the plaintiff's breach was not sufficiently serious to allow for repudiation. Where there is an ongoing sale of goods, how much you were affected and the chances you will be affected again as buyer. Two factors are determinative. One, the ratio quantitatively which the breach bears to the contract as a whole. Two, the degree of probability or improbability that such a breach will be repeated. Applied, the probability of reoccurring, well, there was two shipments that came after that were fine. And the court found that the company was in a good standing. They tested their stuff and essentially concluded that the probability of reoccurrence was practically negligible, negligible, like an extreme improbability. And as far as the quantitative ratio goes, uh, this was also minimal. It was sort of an isolated incident. So one and a half tons out of a hundred tons, which for what they were contracting for is, is, is very small quantitative ratio. Therefore, the extreme probability of it reoccurrence and the isolated nature meant that only damages were entitled. Panutsos and Raymond Hadley Corp of New York, New York, 1917. Facts. Sale of flour, 4,000 4, pounds. Each shipment to be a separate contract. Payment was to be by banker's credit. Plaintiff sent a letter from the bank to the defendants. Credit was recoverable and was not a confirmed banker's credit. However, the sellers made five shipments, part fulfillment, anyway. And these were paid for by the plaintiff. Then the sellers said that remaining balance was called on the grounds that they failed to perform the performance 
perform the condition as to payment by confirmed banker's credit. The buyer refused to accept the cancellation. Rule. Where condition is for one's benefit, it is open to that party to waive the condition. Here, sellers must be taken as having waived the condition's performance. The question is, did the defendants by their act and conduct, act or conduct, act slash conduct, lead the plaintiff to reasonably suppose that they did not intend to treat the contract for future as at an end on account of the failure to perform the condition precedent? If the sellers wished to avail themselves of condition precedent, there's nothing here to prevent them from doing so. If they have given, they had given reasonable notice to the buyer that they would not ship without the confirmed banker's credit. They did not do that, so the buyer wins this case. Turney and Silka, 1959. True condition precedent. Facts. Contract for sale of land. Condition. Providing property can be annexed to Streetsville Village, and the plan was approved by Council for Subdivision. The village did not annex, and then the buyer wanted to move ahead and unilaterally waive this condition. Rule one, promissory condition precedent is where one party, in, in this scenario, one party, in the scenario of a promissory condition precedent is where one party may forego the promised advantage slash to dispense with part of the promised performance, which is simply and solely for their benefit and severable from the rest of the contract. Two, true condition precedent. This is an external condition upon which the obligations existent is dependent and entirely within this third party's control. Until the event occurs, there is no right to performance on either side. Parties did not promise it would occur, so without a promise to its existence, it can be no breach until it there can, can be no breach until it occurs. Ratio. Annexation was in the third party's control and external events upon which and an external event upon which the contract depended. Therefore, the true therefore is a true condition precedent. So the buyer has no unilateral right to waive this condition. The Law and Equity Act, RSBC. So this is just a note to remind you that British Columbia overruled the true, true, condition, true condition precedent thing. Um, and there's some rules to that. I mean, yeah, the BC allows one party to unilaterally waive the true condition precedent under certain circumstances, which are in your notes. Cutter and Powell, 1795. Entire contracts. With entire contracts, no compensation or recovery under the contract or quantum merit unless entirely completed. One exception is that where you don't have type do not have entire performance, but the party agreed to keep some of what is done. If the opposite party voluntary, voluntarily takes or agrees to take the benefit from the first party's performance, then he would be in a position that he would, would have otherwise been in a position to reject and quantum merit for amount work done or quantum velibant as much as they are worth, recovery is possible. If the contract is severable, for example, payment is to be made for each in a series of distinct work operations or component materials, then payment may be recovered for any logically severable portion of the completed performance or delivery. The opposite party will have a right to claim compensation for breach of contract, the extent for which total performance, as promised, not rendered. Entirety. Provision of a lump sum payment upon completion of work tends to indicate entire agreement. Divisibility. 
provision of a provision of a unit pricing system or making progress pay, progressive payments before completion or in proportion to extent of completion are oral indications of a divisible contract. Now, the ratio here cannot base off custom. Written contracts, written contracts spoke for itself. It was an entire contract. No right to desert and then claim quantum merit where there is an express entire contract. Jacobs and Young Incorporated and Kent, 1921. Facts, contract for building a house. Contract conditions stipulated for the type of pipe to be used. It was not used. It was not used. Pipe was already in the walls. Plaintiff finished work and argued substantial performance. And then Kent refused to pay. Ratio. To determine whether the pipes go to the contract's essence, the court considered, one, replace, that replacing pipes would have had no impact on the value of the house. Two, that changing the pipes would require substantial destruction of the building substantial expense. No one would do that if they got compensation for the entire house to just keep it. Cost of completion was grossly disproportionate with the good to be obtained. Proper measure of relief here would be lowering the value with respect to the pipes if the price is differential. When a defect is not significant at all, substantial performance and breach are excused. Then, can award damages only by comparing price. Here, the damages were $0, as both types of price, pipes were the same value. Honing and Isaacs, 1952. Facts. The plaintiff, an interior designer, was employed to decorate and furnish the defendant's apartment for, for a flat fee, 750. Terms of payment were cash as work proceeds and balance on completion. The defendant pays some installments but refused to pay balance on the ground that there was some, some of the work done and some of the articles furnished were defective. The defendants argued that complete performance was a conditioned precedent to the obligation to pay the balance. The court rejected that and they said the contract was substantially performed. It only differed in minor details. Ordered that the balance be paid. Doctrine of substantial performance will apply in any case that has some performance and no repudiatory breach. The Sumter rule is limited to repudiatory breach and refusal to complete performance. Otherwise, you pay for what you get up to that point, quantum merit. That is, if mostly done, you get mostly the money absent its repudiatory breach. And that's the breach cases.